0: Section six of Jail for Freedom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Janet O'Reilly. Jail for Freedom by Doris Stevens, Part Three, Chapter Two: The Suffrage War Policy. President Wilson called the war session of the sixty-fifth Congress on April 2, 1917 on the opening day of congress not only were the pickets again on duty at the white house but another picket line was inaugurated at the capitol returning senators and congressmen were surprised when greeted with great golden banners reading russia and england are enfranchising their women in war time how long must american women wait for their liberty the last desperate flurries in the pro-war and anti-war camps were focused on the capitol grounds that day there swarmed about the grounds and through the buildings pacifists from all over the country wearing white badges and advocates of war wearing the national colors our sentinels at the capitol stood strangely silent and almost aloof strong in their dedication to democracy while the peace and war agitation circled about them with lightning speed the president declared that a state of war existed within a fortnight following congress declared war on germany and president wilson voiced his memorable we shall fight for the things we have always carried nearest our hearts for democracy for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government inspiring words indeed The war message concluded with still another defense of the fight for political liberty to such a task we can dedicate our lives and our fortunes everything that we are and everything that we have with the pride of those who know that the day has come when america is privileged to spend her blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth and happiness and the peace which she has treasured god helping her she can do no less now that the united states was actually involved in war we were face to face with the question which we had considered at the convention the previous month when war was rumored as to what position we as an organization should take in this situation the atmosphere of that convention had been dramatic in the extreme most of the delegates assembled had been approached either before going to washington or upon arriving and urged to use their influence to persuade the organization to abandon its work for the freedom of women and turn its activities into war channels although war was then only rumored the historical attitude was already prevalent women were asked to furl their banners and give up their half-century struggle for democracy to forget the liberty that was most precious to their hearts the president will turn this imperialistic war into a crusade for democracy lay aside your own fight and help us crush germany and you will find yourselves rewarded with a vote out of the nation's gratitude were some of the appeals made to our women by government officials high and low and by the rank and file of men and women never in history did a band of women stand together with more sanity and greater solidarity than did these one thousand delegates representing thousands more throughout the states as our official organ the Suffragist pointed out editorially in its issue of april twenty first nineteen seventeen our membership was made up of women who had banded together to secure political freedom for women we were united on no other subject some would offer passive resistance to the war others would become devoted followers of a vigorous military policy between these every shade of opinion was represented each was loyal to the ideas which she held for her country with the characters of these ideals the national women's party we maintained had nothing to do it was concerned only with the effort to obtain for women the opportunity to give effective expression through political power to their ideals whatever they might be the thousand delegates present at the convention though differing widely on the duty of the individual in war were unanimous in voting that in the event of war the national women's party as an organization should continue to work for political liberty for women and for that alone, believing, as the Convention stated in its resolutions, that in so doing the organization serves the highest interest of the country. They were also unanimous in the opinion that all service which individuals wish to give to war or peace should be given through groups organized for such purposes, and not through the Women's Party, a body that was created according to its constitution, for one purpose only— to secure an amendment to the United States Constitution enfranchising women. We declared officially through our organ that this held as the policy of the Women's Party whatever turn public events may take. Very few days after we were put upon a national war basis it became clear that never was there greater need for work for internal freedom in the country. Europe, then approaching her third year of war, was increasing democracy in the midst of the terrible conflict in america at that very moment women were being told that no attempt at electoral reform had any place in the country's program until the war is over the democrats met in caucus and decided that only war measures should be included in the legislative program and announced that no subjects would be considered by them unless the president urged them as war measures our task was from that time on to make national suffrage a war measure We at once urged upon the administration the wisdom of accepting this proposed reform as a war measure and pointed out the difficulty of waging a war for democracy abroad while democracy was denied at home. But the government was not willing to profit by the experience of its allies in extending suffrage to women without first offering a terrible and brutal resistance. We must confess that the problem of dramatizing our fight for democracy in competition with the drama of world war was most perplexing. Here were we, citizens without power and recognition, with the only weapons to which a powerless class which does not take up arms can resort. We could not and would not fight with men's weapons. Compare the methods women adopted to those men use in the pursuit of democracy. Men use bayonets, machine guns, poison gas, deadly grenades, liquid fire, bombs, armored tanks, pistols, barbed wire entanglements, submarines, mines, every non-scientific device with which to annihilate the enemy what did we do we continued to fight with our simple peaceful almost quaint device a banner a little more fiery perhaps pertinent to the latest political controversy but still only a banner inscribed with militant truth just as our political strategy had been to oppose at elections the party in power which had failed to use its power to free women So now our military strategy was based on the military doctrine of concentrating all one's forces on the enemy's weakest point. To women, the weakest point in the administration's political lines during the war was the inconsistency between a crusade for world democracy and the denial of democracy at home. This was the untenable position of President Wilson and the Democratic administration from which we must force them to retreat. We could force such a retreat when we had exposed to the world this weakest point. Just as the bluff of a democratic crusade must be called, so must the knight leader of the crusade be exposed to the critical eyes of the world. Here was the president, suddenly elevated to the position of a world leader with the almost pathetic trust of the peoples of the world. Here was the champion of their democratic aspirations. Here was a kind of universal Moses expected to lead all the peoples out of bondage, no matter what the bondage, no matter of how long standing the president's elevation to this unique pinnacle of power was at once an advantage and disadvantage to us it was an advantage to us in that it made our attack more dramatic one supposed to be impeccable was more vulnerable it was a disadvantage to have to overcome his universal trust and worldwide popularity but this conflict of wits and brains against power only enhanced our ingenuity on the day the english mission headed by mr balfour and the french mission headed by m viviani visited the white house we took these inscriptions to the picket line we shall fight for the things we have always carried nearest our hearts democracy should begin at home we demand justice and self-government in our own land embarrassing to say these things before foreign visitors we hoped it would be in our capacity to embarrass mr wilson in his administration lay our only hope of success we had to keep before the country the flagrant inconsistency of the president's position we intended to know why, if democracy were so precious as to demand the nation's blood and treasure for its achievement abroad, its execution at home was so undesirable. Meanwhile, quote, I tell you solemnly, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot any longer postpone justice in these United States, End quote. President Woodrow Wilson. I don't wish to sit down and let any man take care of me without my at least having a voice in it. And if he doesn't listen to my advice, I am going to make it as unpleasant as I can, President Wilson." And other such challenges were carried on banners to the picket line. Some rumblings of political action began to be heard. The Democratic majority had appointed a Senate committee on woman suffrage whose members were overwhelmingly for federal action. The chairman, Senator Andreas Jones of New Mexico, promised an early report to the Senate. There were scores of gains in Congress representatives and senators were tumbling over each other to introduce similar suffrage resolutions we actually had difficulty in choosing the man whose name should stamp our measure a minority party also was moved to act members of the progressive party met in convention in st louis on april 12th 13th and 14th and adopted a suffrage plank which demanded the nationwide enfranchisement of women in addition to this plank they adopted a resolution calling for THE ESTABLISHMENT OF DEMOCRACY AT HOME, AT A TIME WHEN THE UNITED STATES IS ENTERING INTO AN INTERNATIONAL WAR FOR DEMOCRACY AND INSTRUCTING THE CHAIRMAN OF THE CONVENTION TO REQUEST A COMMITTEE CONSISTING OF REPRESENTATIVES OF ALL LIBERAL groups TO GO TO WASHINGTON TO PRESENT TO THE PRESIDENT AND CONGRESS OF THE UNITED STATES A DEMAND FOR IMMEDIATE SUBMISSION OF AN AMENDMENT TO THE UNITED STATES CONSTITUTION FOR ENFRANCHISING WOMEN they appointed a committee from the convention to carry these resolutions to the president the committee included mr j a h hopkins of the progressive party as chairman dr d e a rumley of the progressive republican party and vice president of the new york evening mail mr john spargo of the socialist party mr virgil hinshaw chairman of the executive committee of the prohibition party and miss mabel vernon secretary of the national Woman's party it was the first suffrage conference with the president after the declaration of war and was the last deputation on suffrage by minority party leavers the conference was one of the utmost informality and friendliness the president was deeply moved indeed almost to the point of tears when miss mabel vernon said mr president the feelings of many women in this country are best expressed by your own words in your war message to congress to every woman who reads that message must come at once this question if the right of those who submit to authority have a voice in their own government is so sacred a cause to foreign people as to constitute the reason for our entering the international war in its defense will you not mr president give immediate aid to the measure before congress demanding self-government for the woman of this country the president admitted that suffrage was constantly pressing upon his mind for reconsideration he added however that the program for the session was practically complete and intimated that it did not include the enfranchisement of women he informed the committee that he had written a letter to Mr. Powell, chairman of the Rules Committee of the House, expressing himself as favoring the creation of a woman suffrage committee in that body. While we had no objection to having the House create a suffrage committee, we were not primarily interested in the amplification of Congressional machinery unless this amplification was to be followed by the passage of the amendment. The President could as easily have written the Senate Committee on Suffrage or the Judiciary Committee of the House advising an immediate report on the suffrage resolution, as have asked for the creation of another committee to report on the subject. He made no mention of his state-by-state conviction, however, as he had in previous interviews, and the Committee of Progressives understood him to have at least tacitly accepted federal action. The House Judiciary Committee continued to refuse to act, and the House Rules Committee steadily refused to create a suffrage committee. Hoping to win back to the fold, the wandering progressives who had thus demonstrated their allegiance to suffrage and seen an opportunity to embarrass the administration, the Republicans began to interest themselves in action on the amendment. In the midst of Democratic relays, Representative James R. Mann, Republican leader of the House, moved to discharge the Judiciary Committee from further consideration of the suffrage amendment no matter if the discussion which followed did revolve around the authorization of an expenditure of ten thousand dollars for the erection of a monument to a dead president as a legitimate war measure it was clear from the partisan attitude of those who took part in the debate that we were advancing to that position where we were as good political material to be contested over by opposing political groups as was a monument to a dead president and if the democrats could defend such an issue as a war measure the republicans wanted to know why they should ignore suffrage for women as a war measure and it was encouraging to find ourselves thus suddenly and spontaneously sponsored by the republican leader the administration was aroused it did not know how far the republicans were prepared to go in their drive for action so on the day of this flurry in the house the snell-like rules committee suddenly met in answer to the call of its chairman mr powell AND BY A VOTE OF SIX TO FIVE DECIDED TO REPORT FAVORABLY ON THE RESOLUTION PROVIDING FOR A WOMAN'S SUFFRAGE COMMITTEE IN THE HOUSE, AFTER ALL PENDING WAR MEASURES HAVE BEEN DISPOSED OF. BEFORE THE MEETING, MR. POW MADE A LAST APPEAL TO THE WOMAN'S PARTY TO REMOVE THE PICKETS. WE CAN'T POSSIBLY WIN AS LONG AS PICKETS GUARD THE WHITE HOUSE AND CAPITAL, MR. POW HAD SAID. THE PICKETS CONTINUED THEIR VIGIL AND THE MOTION CARRIED. Still uncertain as to the purposes of the Republicans, the Democrats were moved to further action. The Executive Committee of the Democratic National Convention, meeting in Washington a few days later, voted 4 to 9 to officially urge upon the President that he call the two Houses of Congress together and recommend the immediate submission of the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. This action, which in effect reversed the plank in the Democratic platform, evidently aroused protests from powerful quarters also the republicans quickly subsided when they saw the democrats making an advance and so the democratic executive committee began to spread abroad the news that its act was not really official but merely reflected the personal conviction of the members present it extracted the official flavor and so of course no action followed in congress and so it went like a great game of chess doubtless the politicians believed they were removed from their own true and noble motives The fact was that the pickets had moved the Democrats a step. The Republicans had then attempted to take two steps whereupon the Democrats must continue to move more rapidly than their opponents. Behind this matching of political wits by the two parties stood the faithful pickets compelling them both to act. Simultaneously, with these moves and counter-moves in political circles, the people in all sections of this vast country began to speak their minds. Meetings were springing up everywhere, at which resolutions were passed, backing up the picket line and urging the President and Congress to act. Even the South, the administration's stronghold, sent fiery telegrams demanding action. Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, Maryland, Mississippi, as well as the West, Middle West, New England, and the East, the stream was endless. Every time a new piece of legislation was passed, the War Tax Bill, food, conservation, or what not, Women from unexpected quarters sent to the government their protest against the passage of measures so vital to women without women's consent, coupled with an appeal for the liberation of women. Club women, college women, federations of labor, various kinds of organizations sent protests to the administration leaders. The picket line, approaching its sixth month of duty, had aroused the country to an unprecedented interest in suffrage it had rallied widespread public support to the amendment as a war measure and had itself become almost universally accepted if not universally approved and in the midst of picketing and in spite of all the prophecies and fears that picketing would set back the cause within one month michigan nebraska and rhode island granted presidential suffrage to women The leaders were busy marshalling their forces behind the President's war program, which included the controversial conscription and espionage bills then pending, and did not relish having our question so vivid in the public mind. Even when the rank and file of Congress gave consideration to questions not in the war program, they had to face the possible charge of inconsistency, insincerity, or bad faith the freedom of ireland for example was not in the program and when one hundred and thirty-two members of the house cabled lloyd george that nothing would do more for american enthusiasm in the war than a settlement of the irish question we took pains to ascertain the extent of the belief in liberty at home of these easy champions of irish liberty when we found that of the one hundred and thirty-two men only fifty-seven believed in liberty for women we were not delicate in pointing out to the remaining that their belief in liberty for Ireland would appear more sincere if they believed in a democratic reform such as woman suffrage here. The manifestations of popular approval of suffrage, the constant stream of protests to the administration against its delay nationally, and the shame of having women begging at its gates could result in only one of two things. The administration had little choice. It must yield to this pressure from the people, or it must suppress the agitation which was causing such interest it must pass the amendment or remove the troublesome pickets it decided to remove the pickets part three chapter three the first arrest the administration chose suppression they resorted to force in an attempt to end picketing it was a policy doomed to failure as certainly as all resorts to force to kill agitation have failed ultimately This marked the beginning of the adoption by the administration of tactics from which they could never extricate themselves with honor. Unfortunately for them, they were entering upon this policy toward women which savored of czarist practices at the very moment they were congratulating the Russians upon their liberation from the oppression of a czar. This fact supplied us with a fresh angle of attack president wilson sent a mission to russia to add america's appeal to that of the other allies to keep that impoverished country in the war such was our democratic zeal to persuade russia to continue the war and to convince her people of its democratic purposes and of the democratic quality of america that elihu root one of president's envoys stated in petrograd that he represented a republic where universal direct equal and secret suffrage obtained We subjected the president to attack through this statement. Russia also sent a war mission to our country for purposes of cooperation. This occasion offered us the opportunity again to expose the administration's weakness in claiming complete political democracy while women were still denied their political freedom. It was a beautiful June day when all Washington was agog with the visit of the Russian diplomats to the president. As the car carrying the envoys passed swiftly through the gates of the White House, there stood on the picket line two silent sentinels, Miss Lucy Burns of New York and Mrs. Lawrence Lewis of Philadelphia, both members of the National Executive Committee, with a great lettered banner which read, To the Russian envoys, President Wilson and Envoy Root are deceiving Russia when they say, We are a democracy. Help us win the world war so that democracy may survive. We, the women of America, tell you that America is not a democracy. Twenty million American women are denied the right to vote. President Wilson is the chief opponent of their national enfranchisement. Help us make this nation really free. Tell our government it must liberate its people before it can claim free Russia as an ally. Rumors that the suffragists would make a special demonstration before the Russian mission had brought a great crowd to the far gate of the White House, a crowd composed almost entirely of men. Like all crowds, this crowd had its share of hoodlums and ruffs, who tried to interfere with the women's order of the day. There was a flurry of excitement over this defiant message of truth, but nothing that could not, with the utmost ease, have been settled by one policeman. There was the criticism in the press, and on the lips of men, that we were embarrassing our government before the eyes of foreign visitors. In answering the criticism, Miss Paul publicly stated our position thus— the intolerable conditions against which we protest can be changed in the twinkling of an eye the responsibility for our protest is therefore with the administration and not with the women of america if the lack of democracy at home weakens the administration in its fight for democracy three thousand miles away this was too dreadful a flurry at the gates of the chief of the nation at such a time would never do OUR ALLIES IN THE CRUSADE FOR DEMOCRACY MUST NOT KNOW THAT WE HAD A DAY BY DAY UNREST AT HOME. SOMETHING MUST BE DONE TO STOP THIS EXPOSÉ AT ONCE. HAD THESE WOMEN NO MANNERS? HAD THEY NO SHAME? WAS THE FUNDAMENTAL WEAKNESS IN OUR BOAST OF PURE AND PERFECT DEMOCRACY TO BE SO WANTONLY DISPLAYED WITH IMPUNITY? OF COURSE IT WAS EMBARRASSING. WE meant IT TO BE. THE TRUTH MUST BE TOLD AT ALL COSTS. THIS WAS NO TIME FOR MANNERS hurried conferences behind closed doors, summoning of the military to discuss declaring a military zone around the White House. Women could not advance on drawn bayonets. And if they did—what a picture!—common decency told the more humane leaders that this would never do. I dare say political wisdom crept into the reasoning of others. Closing the women's party headquarters was discussed. Perhaps a raid. And all for what? Because women were holding banners asking for the precious principle at home that men were supposed to be dying for abroad? Finally, a decision was reached embodying the combined wisdom of all the various conferees. The chief of police, Major Pullman, was detailed to request us to stop picketing and to tell us that if we continued to picket, we would be arrested. We have picketed for six months without interference, said Miss Paul. Has the law been changed? no was the reply but you must stop it but major pullman we have consulted our lawyers and know we have a legal right to picket i warn you you will be arrested if you attempt to picket again the following day miss lucy burns and miss katherine Morey of boston carried to the white house gates we shall fight for the things we have always held nearest our hearts for democracy for the right of those who submit to authority to have a voice in their own government, and they were arrested. News had spread through the city that the pickets were to be arrested. A moderately large crowd had gathered to see the fun. One has only to come into conflict with prevailing authority, whether rightly or wrongly, to find friendly hosts vanishing with lightning speed. To know that we were no longer wanted at the gates of the White House and that the police were no longer our friends was enough for the mob mind some members of the crowd made sport of the women others hurled cheap and childish epithets at them small boys were allowed to capture souvenirs such as shreds of the banners torn from non-resistant women as trophies of the sport thinking they had been mistaken in believing the pickets were to be arrested and having grown weary of their strenuous sport the crowd moved on its way two solitary figures remained standing on the sidewalk flanked by the vast pennsylvania avenue looking quite abandoned and alone, when suddenly, without any warrant in law, they were arrested on a completely deserted avenue. Miss Burns and Miss Morrie, upon arriving at the police station, insisted, to the great surprise of all the officials, upon knowing the charge against them. Major Pullman and his entire staff were utterly at a loss to know what to answer. The administration had looked ahead, only as far as threatening arrest. They doubtless thought this was all they would have to do. People could not be arrested for picketing. Picketing is a guaranteed right under the Clayton Act of Congress. Disorderly conduct? There had been no disorderly conduct. Inciting to riot? Impossible. The women had stood as silent sentinels, holding the president's own eloquent words. Doors opened and closed mysteriously. Officials and sub officials passed hurriedly to and fro. Whispered conversations were heard. The book on rules and regulations was th- hopefully thumbed. Hours passed. Finally, the two prisoners were pompously told that they had obstructed the traffic on Pennsylvania Avenue. They were dismissed on their own recognizance, and never brought to trial. The following day, June twenty-third, more arrests were made. Two women at the White House, two at the Capitol. All carried banners with the same words of the President. There was no hesitation this time. They were promptly arrested for obstructing the traffic. They, too, were dismissed, and their cases never tried. It seemed clear that the administration had hoped to suppress picketing merely by arrest when however women continued to picket in the face of arrest the administration quickened its advance into the venture of suppression it decided to bring the offenders to trial on june twenty-six six american women were tried judged guilty on the technical charge of obstructing traffic warned by the court of their unpatriotic almost treasonable behavior and sentenced to pay a fine of twenty-five dollars or serve three days in jail not a dollar of your fine will we pay was the answer of the women to pay a fine would be an admission of guilt we are innocent the six women who were privileged to serve the first terms of imprisonment for suffrage in this country were miss catherine Morey of massachusetts mrs annie Arneal, and miss mabel vernon of delaware miss lavina dock of pennsylvania Miss Maud Jamieson of Virginia, and Miss Virginia Arnold of North Carolina. Privileged in spite of the foul air, the rats, the mutterings of their strange comrades in jail, Independence Day, July Fourth, 1917, is the occasion for two demonstrations in the name of liberty. Champ Clark, late Democratic Speaker of the House, is declaiming to a cheering crowd behind the White House Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed in front of the white house thirteen silent sentinels with banners bearing the same words are arrested it would have been exceedingly droll if it had not been so tragic champ clark and his throng were not molested the women with practically a deserted street were arrested and served jail terms for obstructing traffic the trial of this group was delayed to give the jail authorities time to vacate and tidy up as one prisoner confided to miss joy young it developed that orders had been received at the jail immediately after the arrests and before the trial to make ready for the suffragettes what did it matter that their case had not yet been heard to jail they must go was not the judge who tried and sentenced them a direct appointee of president wilson were not the district commissioners who gave orders to prepare the cells the direct appointees of president wilson And was not the chief of police of the District of Columbia a direct appointee of these same commissioners? And was not the jail-warden who made life for the women so unbearable in prison also a direct appointee of the commissioners? It was all a merry little ring, and its cavalier attitude toward the law, toward justice, and above all toward women, was of no importance. The world was on fire with a grand blaze. This tiny flame would scarcely be visible." No one would notice a few mad women thrown into jail, and if the world should find it out, doubtless public opinion would agree that the women ought to stay there. And even if it should not agree, this little matter could all be explained away before another election. Meanwhile, the President could proclaim through official channels his disinterestedness, observe the document of which I give in substance which he caused or allowed to be published at this time through his Committee on Public Information under order of the president of the united states by the committee on public information george creel chairman furnished without charge to all newspapers post offices government officials and agencies of a public character for the dissemination of official news of the united states government washington july third nineteen seventeen number forty six volume i there follows a long editorial which laments the public attention which has centered on the militant campaign, appeals to editors and reporters not to encourage us in our peculiar conduct by printing, defies to the President of the United States, even when flaunted, on a pretty little purple and gold banner, and exhorts the public to control its thrills. The official bulletin concludes with, it is a fact that there remains in america one man who has known exactly the right attitude to take and maintain toward the pickets a whimsical smile slightly puckered at the roots by the sense of ridiculous a polite bow and for the rest a complete ignoring of their existence he happens to be the man around whom the little whirlwind whirls president of the united states and finally with an admonition that the rest of the country Take example from him in its emotional reaction to the picket question. The Administration pinned its faith on jail, that institution of convenience to the oppressor when he is strong in power and his weapons are effective. When the oppressor miscalculates the strength of the oppressed, jail loses its convenience. End of section six.